Welcome to our gathering. You guys can keep your Bibles uh, where Cameron just read. Chapter 4 of John, verses 27 through 42. That's going to be our text for this morning. Last Sunday, we looked at the second half of Jesus' conversation with the... uh, uh, Actually, I think we looked at the first half of the conversation. No, we looked at the second half. That's right. I lost my place. We looked at the second half of Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman where he denounced her religion... She basically wanted to turn to her religion for relief and help after she realized she was a sinner, and he said, it's not going to help you. So he denounced her religion. He also defined true worship, what that looks like. We are to worship in spirit and truth, which means we can worship anywhere as long as we worship in spirit and truth, the truth of who Jesus Christ is and with our hearts. And he also declared himself as the Messiah to her very clearly. That was the second half of their conversation. That's what we looked at. Uh, and this morning, we're going we're gonna to take a look at what, what plays out next, what happens next in the narrative or the storyline. I've got a handful of R's for you. We're going to look at the return, the rush, the request, the reproof, and the revival, right? That's the real exciting one there, the revival. Let's uh, get to prayer, and uh, then we'll get to work. Father, I thank you this morning in the name of Jesus. Uh, for all that you're doing in this place and in our lives, and not just in this place on Sundays, but everywhere. You are constantly at work in your people and chipping a little bit more away and making us more like Jesus. You're putting us through challenges and these various things to, uh, to sanctify us and to mold us and shape us. And I just thank you for, for all of the work that you're doing in our lives and across this town and, and across the world. You are a good God uh, who has so many different things happening, most of which we're not even aware of and we don't even see. Uh, But you are truly sovereign and truly at work, and we thank you for the work you're doing here. Uh, We humble ourselves now and ask that you would work during this time of of preaching through the Word of God, through your own Word, that you would uh, shape us and mold us, challenge us, and grow us and uh, help us to to come to maturity a little bit more. Uh, We want to give you glory during this time and our focus. Um, I do realize that every one of us has come into this place with just various things that we're dealing with on the outside and life and family and jobs and all of that, Lord, and those things are all very, very important to you. They're very important to us, Lord, but... uh, We do ask that we would not be distracted during this time by those things, but that we might hear the truth that might help us with those things, help us to see them rightly. Challenge us this morning, Lord, to be missional. Uh, That's really what we see in this text, to be missionaries right here uh, in our own homeland, in our own place, in our own Jerusalem. So it's so essential and vital that we realize our calling as your children, Lord, and you are a missional God. And as your children, we should be missional, preaching the gospel and making disciples. So help us to see all of those things in this text today. We love you and give you our, our, our time and attention now. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's pick it right up here. Where we left off last week, we're going to look at the first R, the return. The return, verse 27. 27. It says... Just then, his disciples, speaking of Jesus, his disciples came back. 
It says they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Back in verse 8 of this chapter, we learned that the disciples had left Jesus at Jacob's well to go into Sychar, the little Samaritan village that was about a mile away. They went there, left Jesus, and went there to buy food for dinner. It was about 6 o'clock at night. Verse 27 here tells us that they arrived, they came back to the well where Jesus was, just as Jesus and the Samaritan woman were wrapping up this conversation. So Jesus is still talking to the woman. You can envision it in your mind. He's still talking to her at the side of the well, and then the disciples show up. They finally get back after journeying a little ways to get some food. And when they approached the two of them, Jesus and the woman, sitting there talking or standing, whatever they were doing, they began to marvel at Jesus because it was completely uncustomary for someone like him, a Jewish rabbi, to converse with a woman in public. It's just not something they did back then, you, you just, unless it was your spouse, uh, but you just didn't do that. You didn't talk to other women or anything like that, really ever, unless you had permission. And certainly as a rabbi, you didn't do that out in public. So they walk up and they see him talking to this woman, and they think, what is going on here? And quite honestly, they were tempted to question Jesus at this point. They were. I mean, it says, it says here, look at the little phrases it says here. They, they were, they were t- tempted to say something to her like, what do you want? And they were tempted to say to him, why are you talking to her? You see it there in the verse. So they walk up, they're marveling, they're wondering what's going on, and they were like, they were about to say something. They wanted to say something to Jesus, but none of them had the gumption to step forward. And, and question what the Lord was doing. None of them had the courage to do that, and praise God for that, because it probably wouldn't have gone well. It would have been an illustration for all of us today what not to do. Uh, you may recall Simon Peter often spoke out of place, and at one point he was called Satan and told to get behind Jesus, right? And so that's not good. So it's a good thing to keep your mouth shut even when your thoughts are twirling. But they're wondering what's going on. They want to question him, but none of them have the gumption to do it. And so they just basically continued to stand there and marvel and listen to them in their conversation. And they overheard Jesus reveal his true or full messianic identity to her, right? He said, uh, she said, well, the Savior of the world or the Messiah is going to tell us all these things. And he says, I who speak to you am he. So they walked up just as he was declaring himself as Messiah to her. And I'll tell you what, this amplified their bewilderment. It, it, it took it to another level. Up to this point, according to John's gospel, all that we've looked at so far, Jesus has not yet plainly stated who he is to his own disciples. He has not even said that to his own disciples, like, I'm the Messiah. He hasn't said anything like that to them, as far as I can tell, in this, in this gospel. And, and so I, I think that as they walk up and they see him doing an uncustomary thing, talking to a woman and declaring himself as Messiah to her, they're probably thinking, A, he's a rabbi, shouldn't be talking to her. B, why is he telling her that and he never told us that? What is going on here? So they're already setting themselves up for, for a little bit of trouble in a little bit here with the way they're thinking and processing information. And you must understand why Jesus did reveal himself to this woman the way that he, the way that he did so plainly. 
She was not privileged like the disciples and needed to be plainly told who Jesus is. She's a Samaritan, all right? She didn't have scripture. She didn't have the prophets. She didn't have redemptive history. She didn't have all of the history of Israel and all of that stuff. She didn't get to spend a lot of time with with Jesus and, and listen to his preaching, listen to his sermons and see his signs and wonders. All of these things helped the disciples draw their conclusion about Jesus. And I might add the Holy Spirit, obviously, because he's the one that reveals Jesus to us. But the Samaritan woman did not have any of these advantages. She wasn't Jewish. She wasn't touring with Jesus. And and even after uh, revealing some intimate details about her life, that's what Jesus did in the previous section, what happened with her? She still arrived at the incorrect conclusion calling Jesus a prophet rather than Messiah. So she, she couldn't put the puzzle pieces together because she didn't have the history, the background, or the time with Jesus. So she needed to be plainly told who Jesus is by Jesus, and that's why Jesus did that for her. Even though the disciples are probably sitting there going, this isn't fair. What is going on here? Something was going on with them here, and we'll see how they kind of, it kind of multiplies in a bit here. So that's the first R, the return. It represents the return of Jesus' disciples to the well side. The second thing that we see here, the second R, is the rush. The rush. Verse 28 through 30. The rush. It says this in 28, So the woman left her jar, just drops it, and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see, come. See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And it says in verse 30, look at this verse, they went out of the town and were coming to him. So when Jesus declares his messianic identity to her, I'm the Messiah, all of the pieces of the puzzle fell into place for her. Suddenly, everything that they'd been talking about made sense. She basically realized She is a sinner, right? She had all of those fallen, uh, broken marriages. She was living with her boyfriend. She committed sins uh, in a similar fashion to what we do. She realized she was a sinner. When Jesus said, I'm Messiah, she realized, oh, I'm a sinner. I've done all this stuff. She realized that she needed to be cleansed and forgiven. She realized that Samaritan religion would not help her. These are all of the things that Jesus was unpacking for her. She realized and understood finally the spiritual truth of living water. It made sense to her. And she realized that Jesus is the only one who could give it to her and sanitize and satisfy her soul. And she wholeheartedly, right at this moment, it all clicked into place. It all made sense. She was illuminated. She could see the full picture. She yields to Jesus as Savior right in that moment. This is the moment of her new birth. This is the moment where she's born again. This is the moment when she she begins to exercise new faith. This is the moment where she experiences a new love, the love of God, the love of Jesus, and that love um, which also breeds and perpetuates repentance. This is where she says, I'm a sinner, I need Jesus. There's the repentance. All of this is happening right here with his words. I who speak to you am he. Those are great words. When Jesus says that to someone and the Spirit 
um, comes with efficacious power. Someone is literally raised to new life, and that's what happens with her. And what happens next? She's completely and absolutely overwhelmed by the mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus. What does she do? She drops her water bucket. She went all the way out of town to get water. She didn't even get the water and go back to town with the water. When she got back, her boyfriend was like, where's the water? She drops it. She drops it right there. She's not even thinking about that water. She has the living water. I don't need the physical water. She drops her bucket. And what does she do? She rushes back to Sychar and begins to, and begins to invite her townspeople to come and meet Jesus. Come and meet Jesus. She describes Jesus as the man who told me all that I ever did. I like what MacArthur wrote at this point. He said, So profound was Jesus' impact on her that she did not hesitate to share the news about him, even with those familiar with her sordid reputation. Remember, the whole town knew who she was. She was living with a boyfriend. She had about a zillion five failed marriages. I mean, she just the whole town knew who she was, and yet she doesn't even hesitate to start proclaiming Jesus in her own way to all these people, even though they despised her and thought she was a terrible sinner. He says, now she eagerly desired to communicate her discovery to others. Her zeal and enthusiasm provides the clinching piece of evidence that her conversion was genuine, Right? The way that she's behaving here shows a repentant attitude and heart, a heart of new love for God. Unbelievers don't turn around after having a conversation like this with Jesus and and start proclaiming Jesus. It's the last thing they do. They go back to the bar. They do whatever it is that they do. They return to business as usual. I know I was in church circles on and off throughout my life, and just I would go back to business as usual. And she is acting in a way that is completely contrary to how she acted before. She went around inviting people, and she also posed a question. Can this be the Christ? Now, at at first glance, this little statement by her makes her seem uncertain about Jesus' identity, doesn't it? Doesn't that kind of trigger you to think, well, Phil, maybe you're getting ahead of yourself. Maybe she wasn't fully converted because, look, she's asking the townspeople if this could be him. Well, that's not the right way to understand what's actually playing out here. She was very, very smart and very, very wise. You know, as as fallen sinners, people still have the propensity to be pretty smart and to know a thing or two, right? It's not like because we're dead sinners that we can't discern any right or wrong. And this woman was a new creation now, a new believer, but she was actually very, very smart and displayed incredible wisdom here. She knew her reputation. And she knew that if she touted Jesus as Messiah, what would happen with her hearers? They would quickly dismiss her and go, well, there goes that old harlot squawking and barking and talking stuff again and whatever. Why would they do that? Because everyone knew who she was. Everyone understood her reputation. As a divorcee, as a habitual adulteress, it would have been unseemly and presumptuous for her to attempt to teach the people of Sychar regarding spiritual truth. Wouldn't it have? All of a sudden, this woman who's living with her boyfriend, she's an authority on the matter? What? The people would have been like, what, what? Come on. She was hardly qualified to speak with authority 
on religious and spiritual matters, right? Right? Now, here's the deal. She understood these dynamics and chose to be tactful rather than overt and just wide open. She did not want to inadvertently or unintentionally offend, right, with these bold declarations with her past. She did not want to inadvertently offend the people she was now trying to reach. So she simply asked a question, could this be the Christ? Instead of saying, he's the Christ, he's the Christ, he's the Christ. And them saying, you're a nut job, you're a nut job, you're a nut job. She says, this guy told me every facet of my life, could he be the Christ? She's asking an open-ended question, trying to to, um, intrigue them and cause curiosity and a desire to go and see for themselves. Do you see her wisdom come through here? She's smart, man. And what does she do? She says, could this be the Christ? And she proceeds to invite anyone and everyone to come and discover for themselves. It's amazing that this woman had been a believer for 14 seconds and she already knew how to evangelize. Some of us have been at this for a long time, still can't figure it out, still keep blowing people out. Praise God, Phil Baker. I'm telling you, in, in, in approaching the situation the way that she did, totally sober-minded, wanting to be sensitive, not wanting to blow anyone out, she displayed incredible humility and incredible wisdom. And look at how the people of her town responded to her in verse 30. They went out of the town and were coming to him. That's amazing. Her witness and candor regarding her own life so impressed the people of Sychar that they came to see Jesus for themselves. Could this be the Christ? Well, I guess it could be if he has that power and you're telling us these things about your life and we all know that and you're being so transparent and honest. Maybe we should go see for ourselves. That's what happens in their minds and it clicks and they begin to make the little journey a mile out to the well. Pretty amazing. I'll tell you what, guys, just to pause real quick, transparency goes a long ways with people, right? Transparency goes a long ways with people. Now, I am not advocating for a guy in the grocery store line. You're standing there, he's standing there. By the way, I live with my girlfriend, and I've been sinning my whole life. You need Jesus. That's awkward. That's weird if you do that. Maybe he'll say, hey, I, was in the, I had the same shoes on not too long ago. I became a believer. Then you guys, you know, go to the pub, have a cold Pepsi, whatever. I don't know what's going on here. But, you know, right? I, you, you, transparency goes a long ways. It really does. It, 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 kind, of, it kind of disarms people, and, and their hypocrisy meter goes down, right? It's like, okay, it's not maxed out. And she is being transparent, but she's being tactful. And and transparency, honesty, humility goes a long ways when it comes to witnessing. You don't have to, you know, barf up your whole life for people. And then I did this, and then I did that, and then I did this. And then I'm already gone if you're doing that. And then you open your eyes, and I did this, and he's gone. Right? Transparency doesn't mean just crazy. But just being, you know, hey, I, I, let me tell you, I struggle and Jesus has helped me with these things. That's what she's doing here. That's what she's doing here. So that's the rush. Number three, the request. 31 through 33. And this is where it gets a little bizarre. Meanwhile, you know, back at the ranch, meanwhile, 
The disciples were urging him. They're urging Jesus. This is all playing out. They're urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat, eat. They're emphatic. They're begging him, eat, eat. You need to eat something. And Jesus responds to them in 32, but he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. I got food that you don't know about. 33, so the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? When the people, and this is what's so crazy about this, and I find myself doing what the disciples do here so often. When the people of Sychar appeared in the distance, okay, so you're a mile out, and now they're approaching, and now they're getting really close, and you've got all of these people from town, and they're all being led by the woman of Sychar, right? The Samaritan woman, she's out ahead and leading them to meet this Jesus and all that. They, they appear in the near distance and Jesus is there and he's, he's prepared to minister to them, right? Jesus is looking out. He sees all these people coming and he's like, you know, I get to preach the gospel to these people. This is what he's thinking. But the ones that, who were with him to serve were highly and overly concerned with Jesus's well-being, All of these people are coming, and here's the guys that are to preach the gospel to the whole world, and they're hammering Jesus about getting dinner. And all these people are showing up. They began to urge him, eat some food. And and I don't think that Jesus was acting hungry. I don't think he was doing what I do and laying on the couch moaning, oh, Rachel, pasta, you know. I don't think he was doing anything like that. He, He wasn't displaying some kind of, you know, he didn't look lethargic or, you know, like he was, you know, started imaginary chewing, you know. He, he, was, he was focused and he was getting ready to minister to all these people and they're over here badgering him. You need to eat, you need to eat, you need to eat. And he doesn't appear lethargic or sluggish or anything. He was ready to care for these folks, but the disciples requested consistently over and over and, and insisted that he eat first. You know, it's almost like they're trying to mother him. Well, before you go outside, you better have some lunch. You know, before you minister to all of these people, you better have a falafel. We just made all this stuff for you. You know, you're going to eat my dinner, you know, right? You've heard that. And when you don't really eat it, then it's, I will never cook again. Any guys can testify to that? No, you guys are wise because I'm killing myself up here. My wife's looking at me like, Jesus tells them, they're insisting that he eat, and he's ready to do ministry. And and Jesus is like, guys, I have food that you do not know about. Now, this caused the disciples to question one another. They had no idea that Jesus was speaking in spiritual terms, just as the Samaritan woman didn't know he was speaking in spiritual terms about the living water. She thought, well, if I can get some water that doesn't make me come to this well anymore, that'd be nice to have that kind of physical water. Is that indoor plumbing? He uses a spiritual uh, thing here for them, and it just completely flies over their head. I have food that you do not know about. They're looking for stuff in his pockets. Maybe he's got a a cliff bar in there. I don't know what they're thinking. But they begin to talk to one another. Who brought him something to eat? I don't see any food. Uh, Which one of you guys gave him something? I see him eating nothing. But as I said, Jesus wasn't referring to physical food. He was talking about spiritual things, which he describes in 34 through 38. Let's look at the fourth R. The fourth R, the reproof. 34 through 38. Reproof basically means the correction. 
the admonishment, if you want. Jesus said to them, here's where he defines what he's talking about. They are going crazy over him having dinner. And he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So there's the food that he's referring to. That's what is nourishing me. The, I'm doing the will of him who sent me, and that is what satisfies me. And he says this, he gives them an illustration in 35. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? So what he's doing is he's using a farming metaphor here. And he says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. That's how you knew if your crops were ready. They turned white. And he says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. And this is coded, and it's spiritual, and it's kind of tough to understand what he's saying here, and I'll try to break it down for you. But really what he's doing is he's echoing Deuteronomy 8.3, where Moses said, what? Man shall not uh, live by what alone? Man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by what? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord, right? Jesus even quoted that scripture against the devil when he was trying to tempt him in the wilderness to go ahead and make some bread and eat and disqualify himself from being our Savior. When Jesus talked with the Samaritan woman, when he had that conversation with her, when he was evangelizing her, he was performing the will of the Father and thereby received greater sustenance and satisfaction than mere physical food could offer him. That's what Jesus is saying to them. Jesus used the fact that they were surrounded by crops growing in a field waiting to be harvested as an object lesson to illustrate his urgency about reaching the lost which the harvest symbolized. So there, at the well side here, there, is, there are crops and things growing here, and he immediately points them out and uses what's happening here as an illustration to teach them about the urgency of evangelism. He's comparing what's happening here with the crops with what's happening here with all of these people coming out here to meet Messiah and to hear the gospel. And Jesus literally points to the Samaritan woman and, and the people of Sychar who were now coming upon the scene looking like what? A ripened harvest needing to be gathered. Right? They're worried about food. He takes the farming illustration and says, Look at the harvest that is upon us, all of these souls that can be harvested. And you guys are worried about a falafel. Jesus basically reproved and corrected his disciples for being obtuse and not spotting the incredible, incredible evangelistic opportunity that had just come upon them. It's as if he said, you guys are worried about sandwiches and supper time. Look at all these people who have come out here to hear the gospel. Forget about dinner. Let's get to work. Let's get to work. What are you guys concerned about me about? I'm God. 
Look at what is before us. I'm telling you, the harvest is ready. Let's proclaim the gospel to these people. But you need a sandwich. Oh, okay. You're not getting it. That's how obtuse, how dense they were here. And I wonder, I just wonder, how many ministry opportunities have I or have we missed because we were distracted like the disciples were here? Just think about that for a moment. I'll tell you, the the cares of this world, maybe the, the, the cares of our own physical needs, whether it be hunger or something else, but the cares of this world often blind us from seeing opportunities to do the work of an evangelist or to encourage someone or whatever it is God could be calling you to do in that moment. Narcissism, by definition, is just this absolute focus on yourself, okay? Narcissism kills ministry. It does. It devastates ministry, right? Because how can you be in ministry, whether you're a lay leader or a paid leader or whatever, how can you, ministry by definition is serving people. And if you are entirely focused on yourself, how can you be doing any kind of ministry at all? That inward focus and that focus on us and all of our needs and, the, and, the, and, and whatever they are, the cares of this world, it, it's a narcissistic kind of thing it creates within us and it, it kills opportunities. It kills ministry. And this is one of the reasons why Scripture exhorts us to die to ourselves. To die to ourselves. We see that repeatedly. We see the Lord Jesus saying that, take up your cross, you must die to yourself, right? You got to live for me. When we are living only for ourselves, we are literally of no heavenly good. None. Zilch. And and would would anybody in here be transparent and honest enough just to maybe slip your hand up a little bit to testify to your own ability to do this and to focus entirely on yourself, miss these opportunities, be narcissistic. I'll just put mine up real high because I'm the chief sinner in this place and, and that's okay, you know? I mean, do, do we not do this? I, I think that our lives tend to be more governed by the cares of this world than the Holy Spirit, tend to be more led by the cares of this world than the Holy Spirit. And the disciples, when they first started going out with Jesus, they were concerned with, well, what are we going to eat while we're out here? And what are we going to wear? And what are we going to do? How, 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 are, how are you or how is God going to provide for us? What's this going to look like? You know, they're going out and they're out in a field and they're getting ready to start doing ministry and they're overly concerned about these sorts of things, the cares of this world. And Jesus says, you know, look to the birds of the air. Look to the fields of, of the... Look to the flowers of the field. Does not God dress these greater than anything Solomon ever wore? Does he not feed the birds of the air? Translation, stop worrying about what you're going to get or what you need. Stop worrying about your needs. God is all powerful. He's got you. He tells them, you know what? Be righteous and focus on the kingdom of heaven and all these things will be added to you, right? So the cares of this world... And, and even though the disciples are being very sensitive and all that to Jesus and they want to make sure he's taken care of, which is, is kind of near and dear to my heart, they're still being balloon heads. They're still overly... They're, have you ever done this where you've been so overly concerned about someone else that it drives you crazy? Can I get a witness? Right? That somehow you've set your up, yourself up as, as that person's uh, personal Lord and Savior? They're going to get saved because of what I do. 
I better not make any mistakes. Oh, I just blew it. They're going to hell. You know, I mean, this happens. They're overly concerned with how Jesus might be feeling. And Jesus is salivating. Look at the evangelistic opportunity here. I tell you, I've been overly concerned about what other people's do and miss opportunities in that way too, not just overly concerned with myself. The believer who is dying to his or herself doesn't suffer from myopia, and he or she sees these opportunities and quickly seizes them, right? If, if, you're, if, you're, if you're more like Jesus than you, and you're not focused on yourself, you don't have, you're not nearsighted, you don't have tunnel vision, you're going to be way more likely to see opportunities like this and, and not just see them, but seize them and take them and, and, and minister to someone on behalf of the Lord. And in doing so, when we do this, when we're not being narcissistic, but we're being, uh, we're being missional, when we perform the will of God, because it is the will of God for us to be missional, what happens? We become spiritually nourished and satisfied, just as the Lord Jesus did here in this story. Have you ever thought about that? That obedience to the will of God can actually nourish and satisfy you across the board, not just in spiritual categories, but it can, you can be nourished and satisfied in that perpetual effort or in those periodic efforts to do the will of God, maybe do it in evangelism or something like that, that can be very, very satisfying, very nourishing. There's been a few times in the past when I was ministering to students where I, I went, and I don't ever skip a meal, trust me, you can tell, but there were times where, you know, you would just be so in, in, ministering to people and stuff, you'd just forget to eat. You'd just forget to do this. You'd just forget to do that. With me, it was sometimes it was forget to come home. Are you coming home now? You know? It's 3 in the No, it was never 3 in the morning. Uh, but, you know, you just, you just lose sight of, of what's going on around you, and you're just focused on the ministry at hand and, and meeting the needs of those students and loving and caring for those students or, or for that broken person or whoever. You just, you, you, you know, if somebody said, you know what, you need to stop to eat, you'd be like, I'm cool, man. I'm good. And, of course, on the way home, you stop at Taco Bell and buy a $5 box and wake up, and it looks like somebody unloaded a lawn bag in your car. There's lettuce, and there's tomatoes, and there's cheese. Anyone done that? There's stuff everywhere. At that point, you're starving, but you weren't really hungry and focused on any of that when you were in the throes of ministry. And that's because obeying the will of God satisfies us. What did Moses, what did God say through Moses? Man shall not live by physical food alone but by the food that comes from the Father, His revelation, His Word. Have you ever heard someone say, you need to dine on the Word of God? That's just pretentious and weird. But in a sense, it's true. When we read this and take it in and meditate on it, we are being nourished. We are being fed, right? You've heard that, right? You need to be fed. I go to church to be fed. You've heard these things. We've used these phrases. It has to do with eating and being uh, nourished. And Jesus also mentioned a promise of reward right here. Those who participate in the harvest will receive their wages. What wages? The wages of joy. 
When we witness to a person, sometimes God moves in power and brings that person to life. Have you ever been there when that's happened? Have you ever been involved in that with your you're praying with somebody and you're helping them understand the gospel? And in that moment, they say, man, I want Jesus so bad. And, and you're praying with them, Jesus, save them or whatever it looks like. Have you ever been involved in something like that? What happens right afterwards incredible joy, unspeakable joy, you are filled with joy. And that joy is what nourishes us. That joy is what satisfies us. You know, as we were preaching or, or gossiping the gospel with others, you know, God can move in power and cause that person to be born again. We pray for that. We want to see that happen. And when we get to see a dead sinner come to life like this, it is an incredible experience, probably unlike uh, most other things in the world and anything else that you can experience with the exception of your own salvation. It is unreal to see that. And, and, and what's even more incredible is a year or two later when they're, they're still going at it and they love Jesus still. Because a lot of people, oh yeah, Jesus, all that, you know, a couple months later, it's just like there's no pulse. And that's kind of sad, right? And you keep praying for that person and, and you want to see them get saved. But sometimes when, when it sticks... You're like, you got like perpetual joy. Every time you talk to that person, I saw you come to the Lord. It was pretty, could you stop bringing that up? That's getting really awkward. I can't. It's, it's a highlight of my life. What about your own salvation? No, yours was better. What follows all of this when you see these things? Joy, unspeakable joy. And this joy is a reward from God. Because guess what? When we do God's will, He rewards His children with joy. This doesn't mean that's the only time that we get joy. When you get saved, you have the joy. But there are different levels and different grades of it, if you want to put it that way. Now let's look at the fifth and final R. And this is where uh, it gets taken up a notch, right? A little Costanza for you. The revival, don't know why. The revival, 39 through 42. This is where the Holy Spirit just explodes on this town. It's unreal. Not a real explosion, but a spiritual one. 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And her testimony was what? He told me all that I ever did. And then verse 40, so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And it says in 41, and many more believed because of his word, right? 42, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know, look at this testimony, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Wow. The Samaritan's woman, although simple, it just, it, 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 her testimony, although it was simple, must have been very compelling, right? Because many Samaritans began to believe in Jesus just based on what she was saying. I mean, we have what she said here. I don't know if she said more. She probably did. We just have a very short account of it. But the way that she was presenting, the way that she was interacting with people, with this transparency and this exuberance, it was very, very compelling. Very compelling. And I know for a fact that the Holy Spirit had something to do with that. And when she leads these folks to the well to meet Jesus, what did they do? They asked Him to stay so they could hear his message and, and get to know him, right? 
They, they wanted to, okay, look, we have some information and knowledge, some religious information or whatever. We want to kind of compare what we know. I don't know what was going through their minds exactly, but they wanted to hear Jesus himself. They wanted to, uh, to ask him questions, to interact with him, to get to know him. They really wanted to know if he was the Savior. And what does Jesus do? Remember, he's not even supposed to be in Samaria, right? Because, you know, religious folks don't go through Samaria. Leaders don't go through Samaria. Jews don't spend time in Samaria. You go around it. Remember what we talked about a few weeks ago? What does he do? What does Jesus do in Samaria? He, he goes into Sychar and spends two days right in town there preaching the gospel and revealing his messianic, his messiahship to these people. That is absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. And verse 41 tells us that a revival broke out. This is a true revival. You hear the word thrown around a lot today and, and all that, but this is the real deal right here. It says, many more believed because of his word, because of what he preached, the word of God. And these new believers, it's so cool, these new believers wanted the Samaritan woman to know that her testimony played a role in their own conversion. Uh, we basically first kind of believed because of what you were saying. Thank you for that. See, her testimony carried some weight with it because it pointed to Jesus, and they wanted her to know, hey, look, we, 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 we believe because of what you said. You know, that God had used her story, her history and her story and this encounter with Jesus to plant the seeds of faith. And when she brought them, these folks, to Jesus, they heard His testimony. They heard His word, which corroborated with hers and took it to a whole other level. And what happened? They had this new faith, right, based on what she said. But when they heard Jesus, their faith became rooted in Him and it began to grow. It began to grow. So based on her testimony, they began to believe he, he could very well be the Messiah. And thank you for your testimony. And I believe what you're saying. And they go out there and talk to Jesus. And, oh, we, we have no thank you for sharing with us. We have no doubt with what you've told us. And we don't believe just because of what you've said. We believe because we've heard it from his own lips. So they weren't saying, oh, guess what? We don't care what you said. They were saying, thank you so much for being faithful and, and sticking to it and, t and telling us about these things. And now we've heard it for ourselves and we have no doubt. What did they say in 42? This is one of the great declarations in Scripture. We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Indeed. Look at the emphasis. No doubts whatsoever. This is Him. This is Savior. This is Messiah. And this is incredible, guys. Why? Because the Jews, not too far away, were saying there's no way it could be Him. Because our Savior would never go through Samaria. Because our Savior would never hang out with sinners. Because our Savior would not dine with tax collectors or talk with uh, sinful, nasty, harlot women at wells. Our Savior would never do anything like this. He'd become a part of our club. So just a few miles away, you have absolute rejection, even by Nicodemus, whom Jesus spent time with at this point. But in Samaria, wide open throttle to Jesus. Wow, he is indeed, look at this, isn't this awesome? 
He's, he's rejected by his own people, the one he came for. It's not to say that he didn't come for the Samaritans. He did. But these are the most unlikely people, and they embrace him wholeheartedly. That's a testimony to the sovereign power of God, and it's a testimony to God's goodness and grace in that his salvation is literally for, for every nation. This phrase that they said, we know that He is indeed the Messiah, constitutes the climax to the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And this episode represents the first instance of cross-cultural evangelism, right? This is the first time you'll see it there where it goes outside of Israel to the Gentile nations. And who is it that brings it? Jesus Himself. Boy, if that doesn't tell us something about our calling to go to all the nations, nothing will. Nothing will. Application. And I, it's, it, it, it's a little involved, and we've got a lot of time left, but it's important that we listen carefully now. This is where we can take all that we've seen here and, and heard and, and kind of boil it down and apply it. In Mark chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus commands all believers everywhere to go into all the world and witness for Him. Right? In Matthew 28, it's reiterated. It's go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I commanded, blah, 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 blah. And in Mark 16, 15, it's very similar. It's just go into all the world, witness on my, my behalf, preach the gospel to, to all creation is what it says in that Mark passage. It is, if we are the people of God, if we are the children of God, if we are Christians, if we are believers, it is our responsibility to obey this command, and it should be our joy to do it. It should be our joy to do it. I said it earlier, God is a missional God. That's so obvious, right? You see the example of Jesus, who is God, going out of Israel into Samaria, into the most unlikely of places, to proclaim the gospel, to call people to Himself. God is a missional God, His salvation is for every tribe and tongue. It is for every nation. As His children, we should be missional as He is missional. Now, this doesn't mean that we all must get on a plane and, and, and fly to Uganda or whatever. Maybe some of us will do that. But get the basic idea here that we are to all be missional. And, and, uh, and, and that begins right here, where you're at. Now, you, you can't, you, you got to be missional here first before you start going all over the world or into another town or whatever. You, gotta, you should be missional. You should be telling people about Jesus right where you're at, right where you're at, right in your own homes, with your own families. That's the first place, and then maybe the workplace and outside of that. I like what uh, Francis DeBose wrote. He said, the stamp of God's identity upon us leaves indelibly the imprint of His missional purpose upon our image. Now, over the years, countless books, seemingly countless books, have been written on the subject of witnessing for Jesus. And many, many evangelistic models have been developed. Maybe you've heard of Evangelism Explosion. That's just one of them and maybe one of the more popular ones. And what these things do is they help to teach us and equip us how to be missional, how to share the gospel with others. 
And resources like this can be, uh, they can be very helpful, but, but I say, why spend the money when God's Word already shows us how to witness for the Lord? In fact, the passage we just studied contains an excellent model for witnessing, a really, really good model for witnessing right here in this very text. Maybe you've already picked up on that. And I call it the 4E model. The first E is effort. So you might want to write these things down because this is how this is a method for how you can witness for Jesus. It's pretty simple, pretty basic, but you can remember these four E's. You can apply them at any time. So the first E is, as I said, effort. Witnessing requires effort. Okay? We actually have to get out there and do it. It doesn't happen by osmosis. It doesn't just mystically happen and appear. You actually have to engage and, and, and utilize a, a little energy and, and, and make a little effort in approaching people and talking to people, and preferably those you already know to start with. When the Samaritan woman realized who Jesus is and what he had done for her, she made an effort, didn't she? She rushed back to Sychar and began to spread the news, right? Man, guys, I just got done talking to a guy who, who told me everything about my life. Could this be the Christ? Let's, let's go check it out. You need to listen to him. There's the effort. It's a small effort. It's a simple effort. But there's effort involved. And I think sometimes we think that, you know, this whole idea of mission is, is going to happen on its own. It only happens when the people of God engage and do it. And I'll tell you right now, everyone sitting in, the, in this room is a product of someone's missionary effort. Because the gospel at some point got brought to this country. Came over with the Puritans, the pilgrims, right? Manifested itself then and began to be spread. We get the Bibles and all that. We are so richly blessed... But do you know how many people were killed to do what they did to bring the gospel over here for us? You see, if you are a believer, it's because you heard the word of God, and it's because somebody brought those Bibles over here originally, and now we have them and want to... It takes effort. It's not going to happen without effort. And the woman shows us effort. She rushes back to her town. The second thing, evaluation. Okay, first is effort. Second is evaluation. Evaluation is twofold. First, evaluate yourself and discover your limitations. It, it, and, and here's what I mean. If you have a questionable past, I think all of us do, right? Uh, when people find out I'm a pastor, they say you should be in hell. The high school people I hung out with, I was doing hellish things then. They cannot believe it. Maybe, maybe it's a, you know, you're a little sooner to the faith and people are wondering what's going on with you. But here's the deal. You evaluate yourself, discover your limitations. And if you have a questionable past, like the Samaritan woman, it might not be a good idea for you to come out with both barrels firing all sorts of bold claims about Jesus and then inadvertently shut down your audience. This is precisely what I did when I first got saved. I went down to every family member, not my own kids, but my sisters and everyone else. Uh, you don't know Jesus, you're going to hell. 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 Phil, you can go to hell. Huh? <laughs> what? You can't say that to me. 
That's what I did. That was my evangelistic approach. Very, very stupid. Very, very foolish. No tact whatsoever. Can you imagine the Samaritan woman came into Sychar? You don't know Jesus, you're going to hell. You don't know Jesus, you're going to hell. You're living with your boyfriend. Huh? No, that's beside the point. You're going to, you don't need. Believe it or not, we can actually do more damage than good. If we don't use tact and, and aren't careful with what we're doing. So, so if, you know, if, 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 if you got saved on Friday, but Thursday night you were hammered at the bar, on Saturday probably not a good idea to go to the guys you got drunk with and say, you all know you need to know Jesus and all this, and, and he's the Savior and all that, and all that. They're going to be like, dude, just take another shot. <laughs> but you could say, you know, something's happened to me just in the last couple days. Tact. Be sensitive. And, and, and I'll tell you, we all have reputations. And, and, and praise God, the, 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 the real stupid years are 15 years ago for me. There's still stupid st- times in between, but just when I first got saved, people couldn't believe it. And, and they didn't want to believe it when I came out with both barrels firing, telling people they were going to hell. It was just stupid. What happens when you do that, when you don't evaluate yourself and understand your limitations or your history and all that, and you, you blast people, right? You're just firing them. I mean, Jesus, you need Jesus. No, you just boom, 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 boom. They usually call you a hypocrite and dismiss you. That's what they do. That's what they do. So if you have a checkered past, maybe you're new to this, you have a checkered past, be tactful, right? Be transparent like the Samaritan woman. Don't don't be afraid to air out some of your faults and say how Jesus is helping you. That's a good thing. Or you evaluate yourself, you realize, man, I am kind of new to this, or maybe I'm a veteran, but somehow... You have a very limited knowledge of the Word of God, right? And, and, and you don't, you know, you don't, I don't know a whole lot, and then you get tripped up trying to say things that you don't understand or know, and then you end up looking like a buffoon and confusing people. Stick with what you know. Stick with what you do know, because even a brand new baby believer knows Jesus saved them. I love what Rick Countryman says. His, his message was the opposite of mine when he first got saved. He just go around saying, all I know is Jesus saved me. That was his message. Well, that's good for you, you know. That's a lot better than you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, right? The fact is, I don't even know who is going to hell. I can't see men's hearts. Okay, so that's the first thing. You evaluate yourself, discover your limitations, got a checkered past, be sensitive, use tact, don't know a whole lot about the word, Go with what you got. Go with what you do know. Don't try to go outside of that. If somebody asks you a question you don't know an answer to, just, uh, you know what, I'll get you an answer. I'll find out for you. You you know, I get these texts once in a while, Phil, what does this mean? Well, where do you got him at? Where's he at? Well, we're over here. I'm talking to him. Okay, tell him this. Next thing you know, I'm evangelizing through text. I should be equipping, not doing the work. Second, right, it's twofold. First, evaluate yourself. Second, and this is massive. This is huge. Evaluate the folks you want to reach. And this is one of the things that we don't do very well. Knowledge of their context and background will help to shape how we present the gospel to them. It doesn't shape the gospel because the gospel is the gospel. We don't have to adjust it. We don't have to modify it. In fact, we sin when we do that. The gospel is the gospel. But when you get the context and you understand their background, that helps you to shape your delivery on how to describe the gospel to them or how to apply certain aspects or effects of the gospel to their life. Example, if a person is hurting from a bad breakup, 
Telling them that they are a sinner headed for hell is probably not going to help them. And by the way, I can't believe Fred left. And by the way, you're a sinner headed for hell. That's not going to help, right? I, I, I tell you, I've seen these kinds of things happen in, in hospital visits when you're around other pastors and stuff like that. And, and maybe there's a woman in there saying, well, I know that my husband just passed away and, and now he's an angel. And they're like, pardon me, madam, uh, he has not turned into an angel. Just let it go for right now and interact with her later. Right? You don't have to be a doctrinal police officer when it's standing at somebody's bedside when they died. Just point of fact, we don't turn into angels. Angels are angels. We are people. We never turn into angels. But when she says, well, he's an angel and he's looking down on us, and then some pharisaical pastor's like, um, that's not the correct theology. Okay, shut up. Let it go. Connect with her later. That's not being sensitive. That's not being helpful. Use some tact. Some of us are so just concerned with being right that that is what prevails over all other things, over being sensitive. Now, listen, somebody's hurting over a breakup, telling them they're going to hell and all that, not going to be helpful, right? But telling them that Jesus died, was buried, and rose from the grave so we could be forgiven and restored in relationship to God, who is always faithful might actually help them and lead to a deeper discussion on grace. Amen? You see how you just frame it? I just preached the gospel right there in that sentence. He died, da-da-da-da-da-da. We could be forgiven. There it is right there. And, and they might be say, you know what? He, he, they might open up and say, well, you know, I, I wasn't going to say anything, but he'd been cheating on me for years. Oh, I'm so sorry. God doesn't cheat. He satisfies and he doesn't cheat. He is ever faithful. Will that preach? That'll preach, right? At that point, I'm bawling. And they're like, man, he's a mess. <laughs> that might actually help when you take the gospel in its essence and you, and you shape how you're going to do it. And you know, God heals hearts through Jesus in these things. There, there it is. In, in some ways, that's what the Samaritan woman was doing when she came back into town. She wasn't saying all that, but she was being sensitive. She was being tactful. She understood her background. She understood her context. She evaluated. The third E is evidence. Provide people with evidence of what Jesus has done for you, right? Testify to His love. Testify to His mercy. Testify to His grace. Let them see evidence of His power and presence in your life as you begin to live and speak differently. Do you have any idea how powerful of a testimony that evidence is when we begin to live differently before people? It causes people to ask questions and go, what's going on with him? Bear evidence, man. Tell them about what Jesus has done in your life and how he's helping you and healing you in these things. And, 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 and man, back up that verbal testimony with a physical testimony of living differently and watching what you say and apologizing for your mistakes and these kinds of things. Be a different person. That's, that's evidence. The Samaritan woman did this in two ways. First, she bore witness or evidence, pardon me, she bore evidence through new behavior, right? When she returned to Sychar, she did not stick to the shadows and try to avoid detection like a shame ninja. That's what she did before. She tried to hide out. She didn't want people to see her because they ridiculed her and all that. 
What, instead of hiding in the shadows and trying to get from point A to point B while avoiding detection, she went around with a smile on her face, inviting people to come and see the one who changed her life. Evidence. Second, she bore evidence through her message. He told me everything that I ever did. Her message may have been limited because she was a new believer, but she still had a message and she wasn't afraid to share it, was she? Even though she knew how her townspeople felt about her, she still did it. And she was winsome. And last, the fourth E, so that was evidence. Fourth is entreat. As in entreat people to come to church where Jesus is preached and the presence of God is powerfully experienced. Amen? The Samaritan woman did this. She said, come See a man who told me all that I ever did. When a person is newly converted, entreating people to come to church, inviting people to come to church might be the only thing they know how to do. That might be about it. Praise God, they know something. That was all she knew. Come see for yourself. She didn't even go around saying, he's Messiah, he's Messiah, she's Messiah. He could be. I think it could be him. Why don't you come see? Why don't you come see? Entreating. Why don't you come see? She was new. She wasn't R.C. Sproul. She wasn't a scholar. She didn't have it all down. She was new, but she entreated people. And as we grow in our faith, we will learn to articulate the gospel in our own words, and we will begin to entreat people to put their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ for their salvation. It's not just about entreating people to come to church. That's a first step, and that's a good thing, and we should always be doing that. But we can also kind of move up in the faith a little bit over a little bit of time and get more confidence with, with our knowledge of the gospel and all that, we can begin to just preach the gospel out there wherever we're at and entreat people to believe right there, repent and believe. Well, there you have it. That's the 4E model. Effort, evaluation, evidence, and entreat. My question is, are we going to get out there and use the model? It is not intended for mere educational purposes. We are to be doers of the word, not just hearers, James 1.22. I, I want you to, to think of a person in your life you could witness to. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a co-worker. Maybe it's a, a fellow student if you're still in school. Try using the 4E model. Put forth a little effort. Evaluate your abilities and stick to what you know. Evaluate their situation and shape your approach. Provide evidence to what Jesus has done in your life and entreat them to come to church and or entreat them to put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's pretty simple. It's not rocket science, but it does take courage. It does take courage. We need to remember God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity but of power, love, and self-discipline. We need to remember we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, and this includes witnessing for Jesus. Amen? I'll close with a quote from J.I. Packer. I love this. He said this, The Christian's motto should not be let go and let God, but trust God and get going. 
We have work to do, family. The harvest is upon us. Let's go out there and, and, and share the gospel. Let's go out there and invite people to come to RHC where the gospel is proclaimed every week. Let's get to work. Let's get our hands on the plow and get to work. Amen? Start at your house, maybe in your workplace. Maybe it's as simple as inviting somebody. And some people in here that have been doing that really well lately. And I'm really challenged to do this too, just to try to get people here to, to come and experience uh, what God does here and to hear the things that God proclaims here and to worship. And uh, Let me tell you, one of the most appealing things about this church and this is coming from a pastor who served in another church and done ministry for a while now. One of the best things that we have here is fellowship and love. Because you can have churches that get the truth right, and, and it's just awesome. Uh, the preaching and all that is just incredible, but, but it's like a, an, an educational center where there's almost no fellowship, and people are like, right? Robotic. For crying out loud, if you don't like social interaction, don't come to RHC because you're going to get hammered right when you walk through that door. Hi, I did. It's a handshake gauntlet. It's like, he tried to hug me. That was, I liked it, you know. You people are, are precious and loving and gracious and, and caring. And, and that, that combined with with the other ministry that we have here, that fellowship ministry and the rest of the ministry is just... I am just kind of blown away that our church doesn't have 500 people in it because of how loving you are. But that's up to God. That's not up to me. And I just need to worry about the depth, not the breadth. Loving people. You're loving people. You love Jesus and you love others. And that's, that's so important. And that's going to help uh, us reach our community. Let's get out there and get to work, okay? Love you guys.